talk a little bit about the church. My objective here is is that I want to really start rolling up my sleeves and getting into the book of Acts. I want to see the growth of the concept of the church in the book of Acts. Because remember, the, the, the whole notion of the church was completely unknown to these believers. And so it was through the duration of the book of Acts that they really, I mean, the church came online. We know that the church's birthday was Pentecost, right? But, you know, if you would have asked anybody at Pentecost, tell me about the church, nobody would have known what you were talking about. It was the discovery of the church throughout the book of Acts, throughout, you know, Paul's writings, later on in the epistles where he really firmed it up doctrinally but practically in the book of Acts. So that's why I really wanted to kind of go through and look at the the church, what the church is all about before forging into the book of Acts so that we can, you know, be sensitive to these growth spurts of the church, you know, that people were, I get it, you know, I understand it. You know, like Peter with Cornelius, you know, he, he understood something that was primary to the church. So... Anyway, that's just an example. But anyway, John 17, uh, verse 1, this is Jesus Christ, and he's praying. And he says, it says in verse 1, it says, After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. So, you know, once again, if you've been part of our research night, you'll recognize here that this is the the principle, which is God, and the agent, which is Christ. So God granted authority to Christ. Did Christ have that authority previous to that? No, that God gave it to him, right? God was the one who granted the authority, and Jesus was the one who received it. And and that's what you'll notice throughout this passage, is that God gives to Jesus. Verse 3, Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's a pretty clear verse, isn't it? He's speaking to his Father, and he says, Father, you are the only true God. That answers a lot of questions, doesn't it? And... This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And we looked at that at research tonight. When we talk about sending, that God sends Jesus, that's Jesus in the capacity as the Messiah, that he was sent. And he had a mission, right? And his mission was to represent God. So verse 4, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They are yours, and you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. I love that, isn't it? Isn't that great? That these are believers, and God gave the believers to Christ to watch over. Verse 7, 
Now they know that everything that you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words that you gave me, and they accepted them. And they knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. That's pretty cool. Verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And I read something the other day. There's a Unitarian group called Christadelphians, and uh, they don't believe that there's an intelligent evil force in this world. <laughs> I was like, what? That somehow the devil isn't an intelligent evil force, that somehow evil is just a lack of God or something. Right here, it's protect them from the evil one. The evil one is trying to do evil to God's children. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. I love that verse. Isn't that great? I think every leader should embrace that verse. I sanctify them for their sake, right? That they too may be sanctified. You can't really help anybody else unless you've set yourself apart, right? My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So, so Jesus here is praying for generations upon generations, the offspring, the spiritual offspring of those that he's praying for there. I think that's kind of cool, huh? My prayer, uh, I'm sorry, verse 21, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So this is this notion of oneness in the scriptures. And we've talked about this in fellowship. It's a spiritual unity. We talked about this a couple of months ago, I believe. Now notice the language here that I am in you and you are in me. Now in the Western tongue, we use the word in to connote this idea of location, right? I'm in my car or I'm in California, you know, but here we're talking about a joining. I, you know, Jesus Christ says, I am in God and God is in me. And I want these people to be in us. So this, it indicates this joining, right? And this is a, a point that I want to make that we should carry through in our thinking as we go through this teaching is this notion of joining, of joint, right? It's essential to understanding what the church is, what the one body is all about. It says, may they be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me and that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So Christ is joined to God. He desires his disciples are joined to both he and God and to one another. And this is the unity of the spirit. Okay. Without this joining, there is no body of Christ. There is no body of Christ. Go to Ephesians. You know, it's interesting if you go through and you study, there's only a handful of verses that talk about Christ in you, but there's all kinds of verses talking about you in Christ. And it's this fellowship, this oneness. Ephesians 1 verse 3, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing 
What's the next word? Two words. In Christ. In Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Who's that? Jesus. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. So when we talk about the church, we're talking about this church with Christ as its head. Okay? Christ is the head of this church. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. How about that? So the only way that we can have genuine fellowship, genuine oneness with Christ, genuine joining with Christ is through the Spirit. Okay? It goes on verse 14. It says who? It should be which, which is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. How about that? So we are joined with Christ. And I've talked about this in this fellowship uh, in Romans chapter 6. We, uh, I've used this term, we are identified with Christ, right? As he died, we died. As he was buried, we were buried. As he was raised, we were raised. As he was seated, we are seated, right? And I use the term identified. And I remember right after I taught that teaching on that, I talked to my friend Mike Tomberlin, and he launched into this explanation about Romans 6. I mean, I didn't tell him I taught on it. And he said, many people say it's an identification. It's not an identification. It's a joining. It's a joining with Christ, that we are joined with him. And we have to see it this way, that we are joined together with Christ. There's a commitment there. We're not just identified with him. We're joined to him. We belong to Christ. I was thinking of 1 Corinthians where it says, all belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. How about that? We belong to Christ. I was thinking also of Romans 8 where it says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Verse 15, it says, for this reason, Ever since I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I like that. That you may know him better. That's a great translation. Verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, 
and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. Just a little note here, it wasn't, the power wasn't like the power that raised Jesus from the dead. It was the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the power that we have. Verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything in the church, which is his body. The church is his body, the fullness of him that fills everything in every way. How about that? So God placed all things under his feet. You don't have to turn there, but Philippians says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So when we talk about this idea of all things being under his feet, this indicates authority. Jesus as the head is authority. It's a a position of authority. So Jesus Christ is the head of the body. Each member of this body is joined together in perfect wholeness by the Spirit. That Spirit joins them to God and Christ. That same Spirit joins them to one another. But Jesus' headship, while it is one of authority, isn't just one of authority. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2. So this there's this idea of growth in this one body, that this isn't just a organizational unity, that this is a living, moving entity, okay? Look in verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18. It says, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. And he has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. So this this connection between the body and the head is where growth comes from. And the direction, of course, is from the head to the body, okay? The admonition here is to keep ourselves from those who practiced in vain philosophy. They would have you to believe that, you know, nourishment flows through them spiritually. And that's just not the case. I mean, how many uh, how many ministries have we seen who go running off after a quote-unquote prophet who is supposed to be giving the words to this church, and this church is basing their faith and their doctrine and everything else on the words of this prophet? And it's false. It's false. The fact is, each one of us has a direct connect to God through Christ. How about that? The Bible calls us the royal priesthood. If we are the royal priesthood, I don't have it, have to have an intermediary. I got away from that in the Roman Catholic Church. Why would I want to pick that up now? What is a prophet for? What's the purpose, purpose of a prophet? It's a ministry to step up and to remind people of the severity of God periodically, that there's a message to be heeded. And then that prophet, when that prophet's ministry is done, is to recede, and another ministry is supposed to step up. 
it's not a ministry that's supposed to be around all the time. Does that make sense to everybody? I think people have a wrong notion of what a prophet is. You don't follow a prophet. You don't follow a prophet. Prophets aren't supposed to be leading people anywhere other than this is, you know, behold, this is what the Lord says. Okay? I, I just think you'll find that you'll be very challenged to find that notion in the Bible. Prophets would wax prophetic, say what needs to be said, and then that was it. I, I liked what it said here their own spiritual minds puffed up with idle notions. And the church, as a result, loses connection to the head. That's where the growth comes from. It is in Christ that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell. And God designed it that way so that Jesus would have the fullness in order to give the growth and sustain the body. God's growth flows down from head to body. You don't have to turn there, but you'll remember the, the whole analogy that Jesus taught about the vine, right, and the fruit. He said, remain in me and I, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit of itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, what? You can do nothing. Nada. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. Now, this is the record of the beautiful relationship between a Christian husband and wife. You know, back in Corinthians, you know, you, uh, you have a pretty <laughs> basic understanding of marriage. You know, Paul says, if you burn, marry. Well, that, that seems a little you know, unflattering of marriage, like it's there to take care of a, you know, a physical need, but, and it is, but it's even more than that. And, and this record in chapter five of Ephesians is what really fleshes this whole idea out. Um, a lot of times I've told my wife, a lot of times we teach this from the point of view of this is, you know, this is what, you know, God or what uh, Jesus does with the church. And therefore this is how a, a relationship of a husband and wife should be. But we're looking at, Right now, the husband and wife are in this particular teaching kind of, you know, that's not the main thrust here. We're, we're looking at the church. We're looking at Christ, the head, and the church. So let's, let's go in here and look at this record. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. So... As we go through this record, we have a parallel, okay? And the parallel being that as Christ is with his church, so is a man with his wife and his wife with, his, with her husband, okay? It's this parallel. And it's, a, it's an important parallel that we see here. Verse 24, not as the church, uh, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So how does how does Christ, who is the head of the church, take care of his church? Is it all about authority? No, not at all. Not at all. That he loves his church. He takes care of this church. He blesses his church. He causes his church to grow. He steps in and keeps that church from being overwhelmed with trouble. You see that? It talked about 
that it was a radiant church without wrinkle. You know, that's like a worry wrinkle or stain or any blemish. Isn't that interesting? And, and I think that's amazing that, so when you talk about Christ and his church, it's that intimate. It's that intimate. It's not just dictatorial that he stands up there and, and you know, throws out a bunch of commands, but he is actively loving this church and taking care of this church and blessing this church. Isn't that something? And it, the purpose of which is to keep this church radiant and blessed. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Isn't that just a great parallel there? I love it. That Christ cares for the church as you would care for your own body. For this reason, now listen to this. This is really fascinating. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, I just was amazed at this, that the relationship between Christ and his church is paralleled by the marital, sexual relationship between a husband and the wife. It's that intimate. That's pretty amazing, if you think about it, that of all human bonds of affection, the sexual union between a husband and wife is the most intimate. I think that's just fascinating. And I think we ought to think of our, you know, not in a distorted, weird way, but that of just the, the excess of intimacy that's expected here, that this is the mystery. It's not just a, you know, just an organizational relationship with Christ as our head, like he's, well, he's the boss, you know, but it's more than that. It's the church and Christ. Go to, hold your finger here and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And if you think I'm overdoing this whole notion of, you know, likening the, the relationship that Christ has with his church to the relationship in a marriage, between a husband and wife sexually, check this out. Look in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 15. It says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them to a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? So it is said, the two shall become one flesh, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And therefore, flee sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside the body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. That, that's, that's pretty clear, isn't it? I think. So individually, our relationship with Christ is intimate, and it's the same with the church. It's that, that beautiful oneness, right? Two shall become one, and it's, it's, you know, it's it's beyond description or definition. It's something that's completely experiential, you know, and I think it's something that we need to put a little thought into. How intimate are we with Christ? How intimate is the church with Christ? I know people give a lot of lip service to that relationship, 
but the, the proof is in the pudding. I think we need to ask ourselves, how intimate are we with Christ? Um, and I think that, you know, when we talk about what we just read in, in, uh, in Corinthians, that's, that's the real danger of, you know, adultery or pornography. It's so damaging, not only to the marriage, but to the person's ability to understand the sacredness of the relationship of God and Christ, right? Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4, look in verse 14. It says, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work, as each part does its work. And that is a, a, a huge requirement, that the body is made up of many members. You know, several weeks ago, I guess it was a couple months ago, we talked about, you know, that uh, the Corinthian church had fallen into personality cults. And we are, we just can't afford to do this. That the only personality that really has any deep impact on us is Christ and God. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And look in verse 12, it says, the body is a unit. Though it is made of many parts, and th though all the parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. One spirit into one body. Now, this doesn't mean that, you know, there's one big spirit. We all have the gift of Holy Spirit, right? This means one type of spirit. It's Holy Spirit. One spirit means Holy Spirit. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all given of the of one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not the hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not the eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Isn't that great? So this is God's arrangement. God put the body, God through Christ, put the body together. It's the one body. Every part in that body of Christ is vital. Every one of them. So when a member in the body fails to do his or her job and fails to walk by the spirit and insists upon walking by the flesh, as it is with the physical body, when, uh, when a part fails to do its job, right, that uh, the other parts have to take over and compensate, that they have to accommodate this lack. They have to adapt. And when the other parts have to adapt to pick up the slack for that one particular part that's not doing its job, those other parts aren't performing their job at optimum efficiency. Do you, do you see how that works? So it's so important for us to do our own work, to recognize what it is and get to doing it. I think a lot of times what we do is we say, well, gee, I wish I could be such and such. And then we go about trying to be something that we're really not. I think we need to ask God to show us what our part is and then get to doing it. Verse 19, if they are all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, 
I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. Isn't that something? And so that when we think of the body of Christ, we can't afford to see the body of Christ through human reasoning, human wisdom. That's why whenever you hear about, you know, Christian celebrities, you know, this person plays in a group and and everybody just, you know, goes gaga over this particular musician or this particular pastor. They are performing their part. There are other people who are performing their parts. And each part is absolutely necessary. If we make a big deal out of preacher Joe over here because he gets up and performs his part, but we neglect this other person over here, what are we doing? We're showing partiality, aren't we? In God's eyes, they are both equal. And all Christ is looking at is whether they're doing their job or not. Are they performing? When I was talking about personality cults, what is that all about? Well, I've become, you know, enamored with a personality. That shouldn't be happening in the body of Christ. It goes on and says, and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body but that it should, its parts should have equal concern for each other. That's pretty clear, isn't it? If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it, right? We talk about dying to self. Well, that's what that means. We're dying to self. It's not about me. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having the gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. These are talking about people who have giftings, right? Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all have miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But eagerly desire the greater gifts. And now I will show you the most excellent way. And that's where Paul goes right into 1 Corinthians 13, talking about love. But we are to desire the best gifts, the best gifts. What's the best gift? Well, it's the one that we need, right? If you need a prophet, that's the best gift. If you need a prophet or a, a pastor, that's the best gift. Do you see that? We should seek the best gift. That means the one that is needful. You know, you've heard me talk about the tuning fork. Well, I found the passage finally that has the old tuning fork and the pianos, and I thought I wanted to uh, read it to you because I thought it was a great way to end this teaching. This was Tozer, A.W. Tozer, from his book, Pursuit of God. It says, someone may fear that we are magnifying private religion out of all proportion so that the quote-unquote us of the New Testament is being displaced by a selfish quote-unquote I. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other 
than they could possibly be were they to become, quote-unquote, unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Social religion is perfected when private religion is purified. The body becomes stronger as its members become healthier. The whole church of God gains when the members that comprise it begin to seek a better and a higher life. Isn't that cool? So anyway, that's what I wanted to share with you. Traveler is far 